this scripture from today for the today's message comes from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray now that you would clear our minds of all of the distractions of the world and of this life. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to focus our attention upon your word and the message that uh, is being communicated by the Holy Spirit and through uh, the pen of your apostle Paul. Father, we pray that you would enable us to understand your word rightly as it was intended to be understood and that we would apply it rightly to our lives and that the Holy Spirit would apply it to our lives as well. And so we pray, Lord, that as we continue to walk through this book, we pray that you would use the messages of this book in each passage to, to unify our church, to draw us closer into your presence, to direct our attention more toward your glory and the glory of your Son. Father, we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so in this section that we're going to be uh, looking at this morning, Paul is now really going to get to the heart of the matter of what is causing all of the division within the church. Now, he has done that already. Uh, it's something that he has touched on before. We've seen that in chapter 2. Verse 2, we've seen that in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, and uh, Paul will touch on it again, we'll see as we walk through the book in chapter 7, verse 23, chapter 9, verse 24, we'll see it in chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 16. And that is that the number one issue that is causing division within the church in Corinth is in fact the number one issue that continues to cause division in most evangelical churches today. The Christians in Corinth are focused on a great many things. They have their minds and their attention, and they are directing their energy toward a great many things except the one thing that they should be singularly focused on, and that is becoming like 
Christ. Though they are Christians, they are believers, even though Paul sort of wrestled with whether or not they are all actually saved. They are Christians. They are still behaving much like the world. Paul addressed that in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. That is, when I first brought the gospel to you, I fed you with milk because you were infants in Christ. You weren't ready for solid food. But then he says, even now, years later, even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Thus, Paul has and will continue to remind them that their greatest focus in life as a church and as every individual Christian within that church ought to be in the pursuit of Christ. He says that in chapter 2, verse 2, offering himself as an example, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then along with that, Paul will say later on in chapter 9, verse 24, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, Paul says, that you may obtain it. Run with all of your effort. Run with all of your zeal. Pursue after Christ. Pursue after holiness. No runner runs a race half-heartedly. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So again, Paul offers himself as an example to the church in Corinth. He offers himself as an example to every believer. Pursue after Christ like the sprinter who is wanting to win. He'll say in chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Yet in many churches... So often, many believers do the exact opposite. They're satisfied and content with the bare minimum in the Christian life. It reminds me of the classic book that was written by C.S. Lewis in 1942, The Screwtape Letters. And if you've ever, if you've not read that book, I would encourage you to do so. It is a classic um, brilliantly written insight into the mind of Satan. 
In fact, C.S. Lewis in an interview years later said that was one of the most difficult books he had ever written because he had to spend the entire time in a very dark place trying to get inside the mind of the devil in order to write that book. The book is simply a series of letters written from the devil himself who goes by the name of Screwtape. And he's writing these collection of letters to his nephew, whose name is Wormwood. And he's giving his nephew advice on how to lead people to hell, how to draw Christians away from Christ and damn their soul to hell. And in that book, one of the things he says to his nephew Wormwood, quote, if you can once get him, that is, the... Uh, the Christian that you're working on, he calls him his patient. You can get your patient to do these things. If you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and all the more amusing. In other words, get your patient to think that he doesn't have to be serious about his Christianity. As long as he does the bare minimum, if he goes to church, that's okay. Let him go to church. He prays every now and then. That's fine. But don't let him become extreme in his Christianity because a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and all the more amusing, he says. He goes on to say later in that book, giving this advice to his nephew, Wormwood, you no longer need a good book, which he really likes, to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. At last, he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I like. In other words, just get him to spend his time on anything. You don't really have to lead him into some sinful behavior. Get him to spend his time staring at a newspaper advertisement or staring at a cold fire or laying in bed staring up at the, at the ceiling. He informs Wormwood, you don't have to get him to go down the road of horrible, sinful behavior. Just get him to not focus on Christ. Get him to focus on anything and everything except Christ, and he'll end up down here. And then he'll realize that he spent most of his life in doing neither what he ought nor what he liked. Many Christians, maybe most Christians, spend their time dwelling on a great many things. Not always sinful things. Many Christians will spend much of their lives dwelling on work, dwelling on their hobbies, dwelling on when their next fishing trip is going to be, dwelling on 
planning their next hunting trip, dwelling on planning their next vacation, dwelling on planning on retirement. And the devil does not care what you spend your time dwelling on as long as you are not dwelling on Christ. We spend most of our lives dwelling on everything except the one thing we ought to spend most of our time dwelling on, becoming like Christ. The Bible in many places tells us that this should be our singular focus. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek first above all else, above everything else, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In 1 Peter 2.21, Peter will tell us that Christ left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Well, what was that example? In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, the one thing that drives Christ the one thing that energizes him, the one thing that he spends most of his time thinking about is how can I please God in this moment? You see, every day in our lives, every human being makes about a million decisions every day. From what time you're going to get up to what you're going to wear to what you're going to eat to what time you're going to leave to what you're going to do when you get to work. We make about a million decisions every day And in most of those decisions, we don't give a single thought as to how will this please God. We simply live our lives. We just go about our day. We do the basic minimum. I know I'm a Christian. I've said the prayer. Check that box. I've got a Bible. I read this morning. Check that box. I went to church on Sunday. Got that box checked. I went to life group. Got that box checked. Now I'm just going to live my life. I'm just going to do things. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of God. And in every decision that he made, Jesus thought to himself, what's going to please God? What's going to honor my father? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Think of that for a moment. Without this one thing, you will not see God. And what is that one thing? The pursuit of holiness. Yet we run after it like a jogger who's entered into a 100-meter sprint race. Oh, I'm I'll get there at some point. This is what Paul is driving at in this passage. He says in verse 9, or do you not know? 
That's interesting. I'm going to pause right there because this is a favorite phrase of Paul. Do you not know? In fact, Paul uses that phrase 14 times in the New Testament. Do you not know? What's even more interesting is that 10 of those times he uses in the book of 1 Corinthians. 10 out of 14 times Paul will use that phrase in the book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, the phrase, do you not know, only appears three other times in the New Testament. Once in Luke, once in John, and once in James chapter 4, verse 4. It's a favorite phrase of Paul. It's Paul's way of saying to the reader, you ought to know better. Don't you know this? How do you not know this? In fact, we've already seen it several times before. Chapter 3, verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple? He says it in chapter 5, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says it again in chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? And here we are again in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? How do you not know this? Paul is shocked at the behavior of the Christians in Corinth. How is it that you've been saved for so long? How is it that I spent over 18 months with you, discipling you, teaching you the things of God, and yet you are still behaving this way? How do you not know? Paul says, do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there's the link, by the way, between the previous section and this one. Paul is not just changing topics. There is a flow in his thought process from verses 1 to 8 into verses 9 to 11. And the link is in the word, the unrighteous. Do you not know that the unrighteous? Because in the Greek, that word unrighteous is actually the same word in verse 8 but you yourselves wrong and defraud. The word for wrong and the word unrighteous in the Greek are the same words. It is adikaios. Dikaios in the Greek is righteous. And if you add the ah to the beginning, it is unrighteous. It is the opposite of righteous. He's using the same word. The only difference is the Word wrong in verse 8 is in the verbal form, and the word unrighteous in verse 9 is in the adjectival form. Hence the reason the NIV says, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? The NIV wants to make clear that there's a connection between verse 8 and verse 9. But you yourselves wrong and defraud your brothers. Do you not know that the wrongdoers or the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, Paul's point is that if you're going to behave this way, church in Corinth, if you're going to behave like the world, if you're going to treat each other in the way in which the world treats each other, know this, 
the wrongdoers, the unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't expect to receive a reward at the end of your life if you're going to behave the way the unbelieving world behaves. And know this, there are just as many unbelievers out in the world as professing believers who are in the church whose lifestyles are virtually identical. Both claiming to be Christians, both doing Christian things, but both living their lives in the way that the world lives. And so he says, do not expect to inherit the kingdom of God. Now here, Paul is using the kingdom of God. That phrase, it has an eschatological meaning here. He's definitely thinking about a future reward of inheriting the kingdom of God. But don't misunderstand or think that the kingdom of God is purely future. That the kingdom is not here. Paul uses that same phrase and that idea in both a present and a future tense in various places in the Bible. I'll give you just one example. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul writes this. He has delivered us, so past tense, talking about believers. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, past tense, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So at the moment that we get saved, at the moment of our regeneration, we are at that moment brought into the kingdom. So the kingdom of God exists in a now and a not yet sense. In one sense, the kingdom is here because the kingdom is the dominion and the realm of the king, which expands throughout all the universe. And his dominion, his authority continues to advance across the globe. Started in Jerusalem, expand across the Roman world, it moved across the Atlantic and across Asia, and the kingdom of God expands. The kingdom is here. But in another sense, the kingdom is not yet. That is, the kingdom has not fully been realized. The kingdom has not fully been consummated, and that will happen with the return of Christ, the kingdom will then come in its fullness and God's enemies, the enemies of God's people, will be destroyed. And then Christ and his people will have complete rule and dominion over this world and the enemies of God will be vanquished. Paul warns him that there is no future reward for those who behave like the world. Notice verse 9. <clears throat> Do not be deceived, Paul says. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, Paul says. This is so important today. I guess it's always been important, really, throughout the last two millennia. 
Because there are many who are deceived into thinking that basic Christianity is enough. Just do the basics, and you're fine. That's what Wormwood wants you to believe. You've checked off the right boxes. You've said the prayer. You've been baptized. You're good. Don't, don't get all extreme and serious about Christianity. All you need is the bare minimum. Now, don't misunderstand. I am also not saying that extreme Christian activity is the assurance of our salvation. I am not saying that the more you do, the more you're involved in, the more you work, the more effort you put forward, that that is the evidence of your salvation. So what is the evidence of our salvation? Jesus said that the first great commandment, the first great commandment above all else is what we just read for the reading of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, and with all your strength. That's what Jesus did. And that is why Jesus was able to say, my food is to do the will of God who sent me. This is what I live for. That's what Paul did. Paul genuinely loved God with all of his heart, with all of his might, with all of his strength. And that's why it drove him to extreme behavior for the glory of God to the extent that Festus said to him, Paul, you're, you've lost your mind. You're out of your mind, Paul. You're a madman. Paul said, if I'm out of my mind, it is only for the glory of Christ. What God wants above all else is a people who are head over heels in love with God. But what does that look like? Jesus said in Matthew 14, or John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, in saying that, Jesus wasn't saying that obedience is the evidence of love. That as long as you're doing, 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 that's enough. Because God doesn't want just labor. What God wants primarily, first and foremost, is a heart that fully is in love with God. Because if that's true, then we'll spend every moment of every day asking ourselves, what's going to please God? And yes, obedience flows out from that, but we don't spend our lives asking, how do I obey? We spend our lives asking, how do I please how do I please God? Because I love God. I love 
Christ. I want to be like Christ in every thought, in every word, in the way that I respond to the world, in the way that I treat other people. I want it to be exactly as Christ would do if Christ were in my position. But if we're honest, most of us don't think that way. We just live our lives. And if we blow it, we'll ask for forgiveness. But we just go about our day doing whatever we think ought to be done in the way it should be done. Thus, Paul's point is that if the Christians in Corinth lived this way, if the Christians in Corinth truly lived this way, if all Christians truly lived this way, division and strife within the church would be eradicated. The reason there is strife and division within churches is because most Christians don't live this way. They're not fully striving to be like Christ. And so Paul says in verses 9 and 10, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. If you're going to live the way the world lives, if you're going to behave the way the world behaves, if you're going to treat other people the way in which the world treats other people, Paul is saying to them, don't be surprised if you end up where the rest of the world is going to end up. And to add clarity, Paul offers a list of examples. And I say a list of examples because understand this is not an exhaustive list. It's not just these people like, oh, I'm not in that category, I guess I'm good. If Paul offered an exhaustive list, it'd be pages and pages. Paul offers similar lists like this in other places. For example, he'll say in 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 10. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. See, he doesn't mention that one in the other list. For murderers, doesn't mention that either. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. When you see these lists, Paul is offering examples. But these aren't exhaustive lists. It's not just those that he lists who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. What is intriguing from this, however, is that Paul cites sexual immorality as number one. This apparently was a major problem in the church in Corinth because 1 Corinthians has the the second highest number of citations when it comes to the sin of uh, immoral or sexual immorality as, uh, as almost any other book in the Bible. Paul references sexual immorality in this book 10 times. The only other book that mentions it more times than that is the book of Revelation, which mentions it 12 times. 
Other than that, it's only mentioned a handful of times throughout the New Testament. But ten times Paul will mention sexual immorality that is a problem within the church in Corinth. That has a lot to do with their background, with the kind of city that they lived in. The church in Corinth or the city of Corinth was the sin city of the, the ancient world. But here's what's important to note, that Paul is not saying that anyone who has ever committed one of these sins cannot be saved. It's not, if you've done this once, you're done. Right? These are not the unpardonable sins. The unpardonable sins, according to Jesus, there's only one, and that is the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. All sins, all these sins that Paul lists here are forgivable. Most of these are listed as nouns or adjectives in the Greek text. In other words, Paul is describing people who live in this state. This is their lifestyle. Not that they've done it once, or that they're a Christian and they slipped and did it once, went to a retirement party, drank a little too much, oops, got drunk, well, that's it, you've lost your salvation. It's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about those who live in these sins, those who regularly engage in sexual immorality or idolatry or adultery or men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers, and people like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I point that out because it's important today and I do need to address this just because it is a movement that is happening within many churches, and it just needs to be addressed. There is a movement today of those who want to identify as gay Christians or SSA Christians, same-sex attraction Christians. And their argument is that, well, I still have this desire. I know it's wrong. And I'm not going to give in to it. I'm, I'm going to resist it. But the desire is there. The struggle is there. The pull is there. The attraction is there. So that's just who I am. And so to say to people that I'm not gay or I am not homosexual just seems dishonest because I still struggle with it. And so since I still struggle with homosexual desires, does that not make me a homosexual? But yet I know that it's wrong. The problem is that as Christians, we should never identify with sinful behavior or sinful inclinations. It is a denial of the gospel. Our identity is to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. Just because people struggle with a sin and there's an inclination or a propensity toward that sin does not mean they ought to identify with that sin. Someone who struggles with kleptomania. It's a real disorder. They walk through Walmart and they have this overwhelming urge to want to pick up something and stick it in their pocket and walk out. They can't help themselves. Should they describe themselves as a Christian thief? Hi, I'm a Christian thief. So do you steal? Well, no, I don't. I want to, but I don't. Well, then that doesn't make you a Christian thief. 
Someone who struggled with gossip, they know that they struggle with gossip. It's been pointed out to them. They know it's a sin. They try to watch their tongue. Should they identify themselves to other people as a Christian gossip? That's who I am. To identify ourselves with a sinful behavior or a sinful inclination is a denial of the gospel. Because as believers, we are in union with Christ. We have been, as Paul will tell us, sanctified. We've been washed. We've been justified. We are a new creation. Yes, we are still sinful creatures. We are, as Martin Luther coined in his famous phrase, we are simul justus et peccador. We are simultaneously sinners and justified at the same time. We are still sinful creatures. We still struggle with sin. But we ought not to identify with that sin. It's the problem that the church in Corinth was having, and this is what Paul is trying to tell them not to do. Thus, people who engage in these activities as a normal lifestyle, Paul wants them to know, as a normal lifestyle, not people who just struggle with these sins. The people who engage in these activities as a normal lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's important as well. What Paul writes here goes, flies in the face of this idea that God is okay with the lifestyle of homosexuality. That believers can be in that kind of relationship and that God will accept it. Paul is quite clear in his language. And there are those who want to take the Greek word for homosexual and they want to turn it upside down and inside out and say, well, we don't really understand the word. But once you start doing that, you can do that with any word in the Bible. You can do that with any verse in the Bible. And at the end of the day, you end up saying, we can't really understand any of this, which means that all of us are just wasting our time. I believe that God preserved his word and he communicated his will to his people in a way that was designed to be understood by all of us because God is sovereign and all-powerful and he can do that and he has done that. The Bible is understandable to God's people. But let's not comfort ourselves too much by saying, well, thank goodness I don't fall into these categories. I don't live this way on a regular basis, so <clears throat> I guess I'm good. Because remember, these are just examples. These are just examples. We could go on and on with big sins and little sins and active sins and passive sins. And if we are going to live like the world, behave like the world, Paul says, don't be surprised if you end up where the world ends up. And then he says in verse 11, and such were some of you. You hear that? Such, such were some of you. This isn't you, Paul wants them to get. Now, of course, he's not sure of all of them. Don't miss the language. Such were some of you, which is Paul's way of saying, I'm not sure about all of you, right? Some of you might still be lost and in your sin and just professing to be Christians, but certainly some of you are saved. 
probably a fourth of them, right, going back to the first chapter. Some say, I follow Peter, I follow Paulos, I follow Paul, I follow Christ. Well, only one-fourth of them are following the right person. So Paul says, and such were some of you. And then he says, but you were washed. Likely, this is a reference to their baptism. Paul uses that kind of language in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, with regards to his own conversion as he's retelling the story of his own conversion, that he was washed and baptized in the name of Christ. He uses being washed and baptism synonymously. In other words, Paul is reminding them of their public profession of faith. He does that in other places. Romans chapter 6. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? He says in Romans chapter 6, by no means. Don't you know that any of you who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death and you were resurrected to walk in newness of life? So Paul reminds the church in Corinth, look, you made a public profession before everybody and you said, I have died to my old way of life. I'm going to now live in obedience to the word of God and for the glory of God. He then says, you were sanctified. It's the Greek word hagias, which often it's translated as the word holy. In your English Bible, when you come across the word holy or holiness or sanctify or sanctified or sanctification, 99% of the time, the Greek word is the same, hagios. It's the same word we see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. To be made holy, to be sanctified, there is a definitive and a progressive aspect of sanctification. In one sense, it's definitive. At the moment of our regeneration, we are set aside for the glory of God. We are separated from this world. We are dedicated and devoted to God and for his glory. In that sense, we have been sanctified. We have been made holy. But in another sense, we continue to pursue holiness. We strive to become more like Christ. And then he says, you were justified. Justification is a forensic declaration of being in right standing before God. We spent a whole year going through the book of Galatians in order to understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that is that Christ died on the cross where he came to earth and lived the perfect life of obedience in order to earn the righteousness with God's law Demands. You see, God demands perfect obedience from those who will enter into heaven. Perfect obedience. Well, none of us can do that. So Jesus did it for us in his life of obedience. And then he dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. So at the moment we put faith in Christ, all of that perfect righteousness, all of that perfect obedience is credited to us by faith. And then his death on the cross is applied to our sins to pay the penalty. So in light of all that Christ has done, we are justified. We are made to be in right standing before God, not because of anything that we do, but because of everything that Christ has done for us. And all of this happens, Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. God does it all. God does it all. 
Thus, Paul reminds them of who they are. And he exhorts them to live as though they truly have been washed, sanctified, and justified. That's who they need to identify with. That's what they need to identify with. And they need to identify with Christ who makes all of this a reality in the life of the believer. So here again, Paul reminds them of the indicative in order to encourage the imperative. The indicative, because you are this. This is what you are, the imperative. You should be like that. You should live that way in light of who you are. Yet sadly, in many churches, Christians live in light of who they were not in light of who they are. This is because Christ is not the focal point of their life. But if every Christian, if every Christian would make becoming like Christ the focal point of their lives, if they would live in light of who they are and not live in light of who they were, division and strife within the church would be non-existent. Let's pray.